Welcome to Happy Times and Places, a positively inclined Doctor Who episode commentary podcast in which I, Toby Haydock, watch a Doctor Who story chosen by a friend of mine, commentate along, drop in facts and observations, and try to guess what my special guest's favourite things about the episode might be. Hey, hello, Haydocklings. Uh, my name's Alan Lear, and I'm... Uh... Well, I'm sort of an improv comedian and uh, generally just a friend of Toby's. And he's asked me to come along and have a word with you about one of my favourite episodes of Doctor Who for this new podcast that he's doing. Well, I didn't have to think twice about my choice. One of my absolute favourites is The Curse of Fenric. Because Sylvester McCoy was my Doctor growing up and uh, The Curse of Fenric um, really stuck in my mind. It terrified me at the time. And I, and I rewatched it recently for this. And it really does stand up, I think, exceptionally well. Uh, for for a Doctor Who from that period. So uh, I'm just going to give you a little rundown of some of my favourite things about it. Hello everybody, and welcome to this edition of Happy Times and Places. As Alan says there, this new podcast of Toby's. That's how early I asked Alan, who is the, is it the first husband and wife team we've had, do this because Erica Lear, who is his wife, chose The Curse of Fenric a while ago. I mean, both of them did this a while ago. As Alan said, it was when this was a new podcast. So he, I think he did this kind of podcast sight unseen or, you know, um, hearing unheard uh, because... This was this was very early. I have to say, I was slightly I was slightly disappointed with it, with uh, Erica and Alan because they both chose absolute classics. Do you know what I mean? I was I was getting quite, I was quite you know funky with my friends going, oh yeah, John Cooper's chosen Time Flight and uh, John Turner's chosen Battlefield. These are some of the early ones. And then Alan Alan and uh, Erica come straight with Caves Ranzani, Curse of Fenric, bona fide classics. Um, which is maybe why I've made them wait <laughs> to do these. Alan undersells sells himself, actually. He's an excellent uh, improv comic. I have actually seen him save a night that involved uh, the comedian Tony Sattery, who I was, you know, delighted to work with and, and uh, uh, you know, a real pleasure to have under the roof of my comedy club. But uh, Alan was very much the guiding force, uh, the, the sort of unsung hero on the stage uh, who often... You know, not only had an eye on being funny, but had an eye on making sure that the night steered in the right direction and with improv, you know, getting audience suggestions and all that and sort of filtering that and, you know, keeping the show going when it threatened to get wayward and stuff. Um, yeah, and he controlled Tony Slattery's talent, shall we say. Uh, so I was very impressed with that. And Alan and I go back a long way and um, have, uh, yeah, we, uh, we we speak the same language and have often done so uh and uh he's helped me in the past and is a good egg and actually has currently been doing so actually up you know long after he recorded this been uh been going through my quatermass books with a fine tooth comb and uh, you know pointing out typos bad grammar etc etc he's been proofreading for me basically uh, as a favour and you know doing a really good job of it so I'm very grateful to Alan if you ever need a proofreader I can thoroughly recommend Alan he does it quickly but very well and doesn't leave a stone unturned or a or a, you know a comma unspaced or whatever and he's chosen the curse of Fenric a story that I was obsessed with as a youth you know I I I, I spent a lot of my time I've said this before as a teenager uh, being very cross 
with Doctor Who and always thinking it was better in the old days, etc., etc. But this was a story I loved. I loved so much. I wrote my own film version of it without the Doctor and Ace. I, I created these other characters. And, uh, oh, we were going to do it because... Um, we, we didn't live by the coast, but we'd got there was a there was a a, a river in Ludlow where we, we we could have doubled up as a sort of inlet and all of that. And I think I, I, I accounted for that in the script um, and I was going to get all my mates to do it. And yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, but we, I was, you know, forever doing that. I'm sure there are people who, you know, design album covers for their band without actually writing a song. I was very much like that. You know, we were it was it was the the, the sort of fun was in the. The, the the planning of it uh you know without actually doing any of the uh doing any of the uh, you know the, the practical making of the artistic stuff but oh you know we uh, i'd cast you know i cast all my friends in it and yeah it's all very exciting but we just never did sourced some of the costumes because I, I had a mate who could you know had a couple some second-hand military costumes so you know uh we, we we got a couple. I got a couple of the Russian bits, and then we had a school trip to Russia as well. Well, anyway, I am sure I will get into all of that. But I was obsessed with this story. I watched it over and over again. I mean, I could have probably quoted it line by line. So I'm going to have no trouble loving this. I suspect it won't be a disappointment. I haven't watched it for ages, actually. Uh, speaking now, I think perhaps I should have watched it for fun uh, before doing this. But never mind, we're going to we're going to go for episode one. And I'm doing the as broadcast version, I believe, of The Curse of Fenric. So, you know, I might get to do other versions of this down the line as extras or bonuses or alternatives. But we're going to go with the ads broadcast because there are many different versions of The Curse of Fenric. But the one I know best is the one that was broadcast on the television on the 25th of October, 19. 89. So with that in mind, shall we go for episode one of The Curse of Fenric in three, two, one. I'd actually, um, I'd met Sylvester McCoy. Some friends of mine had organised some sort of pick-up litter campaign or something in Wolverhampton. Uh, and we got to chaperone Sylvester McCoy for that day and he turned up in costume. I do have a photo. Uh, he turned up in costume uh, and it's one of the few photos of my Doctor Who scarf that got eaten by, by moths that, that still exist. And um, and he'd said, oh, you know, the, 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 this one, The Curse of Fenric, you know, we're trying to get it to go out as, as five episodes because there's so much material. So it kind of, and I remember asking, is, is Dinsdale Landon the lead the guest you know the main guest star because i'd i'd read about dinsdale landon being in it and i i don't think i actually knew who he was which almost gave him even more kudos in in, in you know you know it's all it's all right to be an actor i've heard of but to be an actor with a name like dinsdale Landon, i think i'd got an inkling that he was a you know that he was a famous actor but i i didn't think i don't think i knew him for anything anyway i'm getting ahead of myself but i knew i i was sort of geared up that this story might be pretty cool um a war setting is always great. Doctor Who with soldiers was always very exciting to me. Um, I love the fact that they're speaking in Russia and we've got subtitles. I, But I was I was always disappointed with those subtitles. I was like, why have they got sort of Doc Matrix big 
slightly childish subtitles. Why have they not just gone for normal subtitles? It was almost like going, yes, we're in a programme that children watch, so we have to make the subtitles a bit sort of big and basic and childish. And uh, and I think on the special edition they just make them normal subtitles, which is quite right because um, it's one of the few things I don't like is the subtitles uh, in, in this. But even though I love the fact that they, you know, they start speaking in Russian. And because this is... There's so much in this. It's really brisk. Love that opening scene uh, with the Doctor and Ace and, and the way it stops on, you know, M- McCoy looking around as if there's something up. I love this incidental music. I adored the fact that it was Russian, so I got really into Russia. I just... And I'd just been to see uh, a Chekhov play. Um, stumble, 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 stumble. Um, uh, uh, at at uh, Stratford upon Avon, and I'd you know all, the only Chekhov I knew was the uh, uh, you know the guy from the Starship Enterprise, ha ha ha. But I, I I my first proper girlfriend really, her family, and I think that I don't I didn't think they really approved of me because um they were I think they were aspirational, and um, yeah anyway let's not get into that. But uh, they 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 took me to see the Seagull by Anton Chekhov at Stratford, and I absolutely loved it christian anholt went on to be in loads had a great career for a bit i met him recently he's quite muscly and good looking son of tony anholt uh who was in howard's way and space 1999 and stuff and coffee adverts but christian anholt was uh, he was a bit of a film star i and, and I, I i like this but i always i always think this is an odd point to tell i i buy that we've got to speak in english because of the mission and it actually becomes quite important and it means you don't have to have subtitles for the whole thing but it is a bit odd that Prozorov's sort of run up from the beach and obviously said something like something's going down on the beach and he's gone no 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 do it again but this time in english i could understand if it was a bit later and he sort of gone uh the moon is drawing and he goes yeah okay now we have to speak in english but sort of in the middle of a kind of there's a disaster yes wait i am not going to do anything sergeant Prozorov, until you start speaking in english the pacing of this is superb and read i mean and read <laughs> uh what a, what a sign that uh, you know how an actor's career could go because she she's done low she's done loads at this point but you know it's 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 not it's but you know when she comes back to doctor who she's the she's the guest lead um uh you know it's a very much a supporting part nurse crane i mean it's it's a good supporting part because it's a good script and pretty much all of the parts are good um this is uh again the 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 the, the the lick that this goes at, the fact that it dispenses with sort of all of the nonsense. I do like the the flourish of uh, of of the Doctor signing both of the bits of paper, and I love the thing that that Ace understands, you know, bec- bec- and that you know that shows how technology improves. You know, um, what she learned about in school is 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 you know high end stuff for Doctor Judson, uh, who's a wheelchair user, uh, not a an actor who's a wheelchair user because he does have to stand up later um uh, but um i he's, i think he's wonderful dinsdale landon uh stephen rimkus another actor who at this time suddenly started doing any everything he's in a i was and i was very surprised to discover he's very scottish he was in a thing called conquest of the south pole not long after which was a south pole north pole which was a a a, 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 a movie i think based on a play uh, set in a sort of rough housing estate where they, where they, you know, a, a, a load of you know people on the fringes of society recreated the conquest of the pole. Um, 
but he's all, he was also in Prick Up Your Ears and uh, uh, and he was in a production of Elidor and he when he was in the Bill he did he did a really good one where he was a policeman who had gone undercover as a as a football hooligan and and you know it, it felt like Doctor was lucky to get him really because he was doing other bigger stuff around this. It's still a decent part in this, but it's uh, you know he had better parts. But again, he's another one that well he he kind of then has has kind of receded into the distance a bit. A bit like Christian Anholt, they both went on to you know flourish for for 10 years or so but i think of have have, uh, have have not had such a good time of it latterly it's a cruel business whereas this guy mark conrad as petrosian uh i don't think has done much else at all we haven't seen seen much of him um love tomek bork as captain sorin and of course i actually even like these two guys the guy on the beach gaev with his with his uh, scratches on his neck um and this underwater shooting is excellent there's so much that's great about this um i i think this um the scene where petrosian uh runs away in a moment is is slightly awkward just because of the way that it's shot his 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 run looks slightly slightly comical there are there are, there are two or three tiny bits that i always that i that i'm sure i will mention because they 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 all they always slightly worried me because again i wanted to show this to people to show how brilliant uh, doctor who was these days because I, I i as i say i absolutely love this um and, and i remember being furious because the this was this to me was the best doctor episode in ages i'd, I'd like ghost light but i had find, found it a bit too confusing for the for the modern audience as it were um but this i thought you know everyone would love and and for the trailer they showed this bit and it's like go. <laughs> I mean, come on! Of all the bits you could show in this really exciting episode, you sh you show that sort of slightly comical exchange. Um, I, I yeah, I just think that, that the angle that this is shot at makes his makes his run away look slightly comical. I don't think it's his fault. It's just one of those things. Um, but it's so tight, isn't it? And then you've got the Doctor wandering around being mysterious, which is great. Uh, I mean, but Perkins is all set up for somebody to either do something heroic in part four or die horribly in part four. And actually, you, you just don't see him in part four, but we'll get to that. Um, eyes watching. I mean, this is this this hasn't let up at all. Um, oh, the, 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 there is a bit, um, isn't it, when... Um, is it when when Sylvester McCoy's just signed the two bits of paper and he goes, Doctor Judson's work at translating the German ciphers is very important, and the way that he does it um, suggests is is something I've observed with Sylvester McCoy is that he's not always on top of his lines, and he will sometimes say a sentence in a way he will stress words just to buy him a little bit of time to get the rest of the sentence in his head, and I think that Doctor Judson's work in translating the German ciphers is very important to the raw effort is one way you can see that the rhythm is dictated by his memory. Janet Henfrey, who uh, turned up in uh, Mummy on the Orient Express, she's a lovely woman. She's one of those actresses that has always sort of played, you know, sort of similar. Uh, well, yeah, she's she played quite a lot of similar parts. She's obviously teachers in two of the Dennis Potters. Um, uh, she's a very good actress, stalwart. Uh, and Joanne Kenny and Joanne Bell. Joanne Kenny, who I'd forgot, I, I, I didn't instantly recognise, was in um, was in Grange Hill. Uh, and he's now sadly no longer with us. Died rather young. Um, 
I love this scene. And, and having watched the special edition, I think, again, it's truncated from a slightly longer sequence. But there's something so enigmatic and weird about this. And I know there's a they, they cheat, don't they, slightly, because naval officers weren't allowed facial hair, but they wanted the, the Hitler look. And I, I, love, I love the way he sort of comes out of his reverie, uh, Alfred Lynch as Millington. And, and 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 the sort of even the, the way that he holds his wrist and then holds his 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 finger in his hand and contemplates the chess set with Mark Ayres's excellent score. I I for I, for a scene with no dialogue that is just there to establish this slightly strange character of Commander Minnington. I love that scene. I don't know why it's one of my favourite scenes in Doctor Who, and I don't quite know why. I just think it's beautifully evocative. Um, not to mention Nicholas. I remember being furious uh, that Nicholas Parsons had been cast in Doctor Who, and he's absolutely fantastic in this. Um, and again, look at that on the neck, vamp vampiric, and the body's kind of white and drained, which is very good. Um, uh, and, and I remember they sh there was an early clip that I caught, you know, in a trailer for forthcoming season, and it had, uh, uh, and it and it and it had. Um, you know Sylvester McCoy and Nicholas Parsons and it's the bit where you know he says to the doctor I'm afraid I don't understand and the doctor says afraid yes but of what and in isolation I, I wasn't convinced by Parsons and I thought oh god is he going to be a bit limp and a bit wooden he's absolutely brilliant in this and and, and I, you know I, hats off to John Nathan Turner because it was the sort of casting that would kind of get attention it was also though the sort of casting that would annoy people like me who wanted Doctor Who to be taken very very seriously but I have to say there is something good about seeing now I know William Gaunt is a very you know serious classical actor and always always has been but he was very well known for the sitcom um, uh, No Place Like Home so so you know seeing him as Orsini and, and seeing my brothers and sisters going oh yeah he's that guy from that wow you know and, and seeing Nicholas Parsons it's like when Bob Monkhouse did a straight performance in something I can't remember what now and and, and because you're used to seeing somebody being funny all the time uh, seeing them actually turn up and deliver the business and Parsons really does in this uh, gives something an extra quality to it that's why it's always nice to see actors that you know doing something different especially if they are so convincing at doing something different which is why we don't always like seeing people we don't know in stuff there is there is a reason people use names is because we quite enjoy watching the craft of acting um and and that's something that's you know there's a lot of debate about at the moment because we even now had recently michael sheen saying you know he didn't you know and the press spun it he didn't he wasn't making a demand but he was saying you know he wasn't always over the moon when non-welsh actors played welsh um uh and, and you know actually the art of the art of the character actor i i do enjoy watching but i do understand you know authenticity and lived experience as well but i think great actors great craftspeople um i always say a good actor you know don't cast a bus driver as the bus driver because a cast an actor as the bus driver because a good actor knows more about the bus driver than a bus driver knows about himself a good actor has to be a good you know psychoanalyst or also has to be able to transmit something about the character's thoughts that the character themselves doesn't actually understand or know they're transmitting there is a craft to to acting um, there's all, and as I say, not everyone is a technical actor. Some people just have the skill of doing that instinctively, or it's, or you know, they convey it because they're very good at, you know, having their thoughts 
show in their face without actually doing anything. And that can be an innate talent, but also, you know, craft. Oh, I've just seen somebody coming out of the sea. I have never seen that before. I've got it on a big screen just in the corner where uh, when when McCoy was uh, talking to Ace there, I just saw somebody popping out of the sea. Never seen that before. But again, they're dip, zipping about all over the place. And I don't think it harms this at all. I think it really keeps the story going. Now, Alfred Lynch, I didn't think I knew. But I had actually seen the film The Hill, which my brother had got out when we had a we had, we rented a video machine for about a month. Before, but then did, I think my brother didn't pay for it, and so then they came and got it back. Um, and and he hired out a movie called The Hill with Sean Connery. Uh, and and Alfred Lynch is the sort of weedy soldier that is bullied by Ian Hendry and uh, Harry Andrews, and it's a wonderful film. The Hill, sharp, stark black and white, directed by Sidney Lumet. Lots of characters getting sweaty and cross with each other in a military uh, prison, and Sean Connery, um, you know, showing outside of Bond, you know, his acting metal. Um, I love. I love uh, Dinsdale Landon. It's a great character performance. Uh, and, and Lynch has a, you know, Landon's doing lots of sort of, you know, that uh, that Clive Merrison description of vivid acting, which I have no problem with, especially when you're playing a mad scientist in a, who's a wheelchair user. But there's a lovely sort of broken quality to Lynch. I know some people find it odd because he has that slightly slurred, Delivery almost like he's, you know, got a slight bell's palsy or a slight stroke or something. Uh, interestingly, he was he was caring for his partner who had had a stroke uh, in in uh, later, well, many later years, because his partner's James Culliford, who is in the first two episodes of Frontier in Space, whose last job that was, who I think had a stroke at around the time that it was going out. And, uh, and uh, Alfie Lynch, as he was known to his friends, uh, you know, cared, cared for Culliford. I think they lived in Brighton, I think. They were mates of John Nathan Turner. Um, uh, so I didn't think I knew Lynch. And again, that gave him a certain quality in my eyes because, you know, when you if they were casting, you know, actors in lead roles and I'd not really heard of them, I, fe I felt that was a shortcoming on my part. And then, of course, I did a little delving and realised, actually, I I had seen him in The Hill and and then he'd done, low, you know, he'd had, he'd had leads in movies. He'd done another one with Sean Connery. Um, and, and, you know, Landon had this this great theater, theatrical pedigree. Um, uh, so I felt I was being educated by by Doctor Who. Um, and I think it's lovely casting. Some, as I say, some don't get on with uh, with Alfred Lynch, but I think he's I think he's wonderful. I think you could go for a sort of gruff, barky uh, military type. But I, I think his his slightly watery eyes, he always had that slightly droopy physiognomy. Uh, like, like you know, he's it he was sort of made of clay and had been rained on, uh, or, or just cried, and 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 his, you know, in his yeah. So there's a sort of forlorn aspect to him, slightly broken man, which again, which sort of ties in with that subtext that they have of of him and Judson, which I know, you know, then comes out in the in the book uh, and the various. I mean, so many iterations. Remember being so excited about the book because that was going to expand. Uh, you know this because because there is so much that had either been cut or had to be done briefly it's a story that earns a further delve or allows you to fill in blanks if you want to and that so it made it a very rewarding experience reviewing it thinking about filling in those blanks or anticipating the book to see if it did the book changed the names of some of the russians prozorov comes becomes trofimov doesn't he but uh what you know what what I knew that uh, 
probably a lot of my friends didn't know, which made me feel very special. But having to gone to see the seagull at uh, Stratford, Jane Russell, um, and I didn't know about dra drawing on the back of a leg to show that you've got stockings. Anyway, um, uh, is that all the Russian soldiers are named after characters in Chekhov plays? So Sorin is in uh, the seagull. Um, Petrosian is he in? He's in one of them. Three sisters. Prozorov, Andre Prozorov is in Three Sisters, but Trofimov is in Cherry Orchard. Uh, um, and this is Peter Tchaikovsky as Prozorov, who uh, went to Manchester University, not uh, with Sophie Aldred, I think, or certainly at around that time, uh, which is and 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 did the course that I ended up doing not that long afterwards. So. Um, uh, you know, it's, 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 this was such a special story to me. I used to love it when things like that, but I've, I've always felt a kind of affinity with it. Um, oh, Gaev. Gaev is also in, uh, in, in Czech. Even, so even the non-speaking guy, um, Gaev's in uh, Cherry Orchard. Um, and and uh, and again, I, I I think some of this is in the script, but but I know that the you know the 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 brevity the the, the 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 truncation means we get sort of voiceover bits. Love the dead Russian under the sea. That just felt really kind of uh, sort of grown up stuff, the sort of stuff we hadn't hadn't really seen in Doctor Who for a while. So it's got some real sort of horror movie stuff. Um, I like I like the way they sort of they they, they, they sort of pick with there and Corey Pullman I think is uh, is great, um, you know Kathleen is a is a really convincing character that yes there is there is she she does has whipped up a time storm and got a super Ted super Ted teddy bear uh, and whipped it back to uh, World War Two. <laughs> um, uh, oh, and of course, yes. So this is the yes. The the baby is the baby is her mum. The baby. I was I was. In fact, I was emailing somebody. Somebody emailing back and forth. Uh, um, people have tracked down this baby because the baby gets a credit, uh, and of course, this baby is now a hundred and fifty years old. Uh, <laughs> oh, poor old Ace. Um, it was brave of them to do this kind of subject matter for. I mean, it's a bit embarrassing that Ace. I mean, you could you could have pretended, um, um, but it's very brave of them to do this story of you know this this emotionally damaged teenager who had a bad relationship with her mother and to thread it through as a sort of sub you know as a, as a as a sort of story arc within Doctor Who is 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 quite advanced and I think quite brave. Um, another. Excellent scene. Um, again, just uh, and, and the whole baby thing uh, gives us that lovely stuff about the so that the, you know the social mores later on. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. Um, Doctor and Ace do have sort of free rate, <laughs> free rate to just sort of wander around, don't they? But no, I think this has everything in it. It's got. I think the World War Two setting is really helpful. This is brilliant. The you know. It's, it actually turns out to just be a thing that's not actually that relevant to the plot, um, that he's, you know, trying to think the way the Germans think. But it means we get that brilliant establishing scene 
and and uh, and it just makes it very atmospheric and a bit oppressive and a bit scary um and again doctor who, it's it seems odd now that doctor who didn't do world war 2 as often as maybe one might think it would have done because uh, it's a great setting but i also I, I remember feeling that it was extremely refreshing to have russians rather than germans in it it just made it again feel a bit less obvious a bit more grown up and uh, and i remember you know learning all of the russian dialogue and being idiot with it um anyway you know I, I think i've got me saying it out loud into a video camera at a party once because i don't know i thought i was being i'm speaking russian man um <laughs> but we did and we did go to russia we had a school trip to russia uh i love the way that he does this and and of course anything you know i'm a sucker for, i'm a big nigel neal fan but nigel neal's not the only person that does it anything that has an ancient text that a good actor can read out and and you know be, be a bit spooked by uh because it's ancient anything that is ancient anything that is old anything that is musty brings with it death the passage of time you know, the undead skeletons cobwebs uh and and really helps and then you've got the sort of warlike setting as well which is terrific and these this beach is great isn't it with all the white rocks uh and and you know having it set by the sea as well which of course later gives us monsters rising from the sea it's got it all vampires soldiers ancient texts and a cliffhanger with guns being pointed at the doctor and ace which is you know a, a fairly standard and not not amazing cliffhanger but it doesn't really matter because you kind of go i've just had a totally satisfying episode of doctor who it's got it all you know the mystery what are the russians up to it's got those great characters on the camp uh, it, you know it had the nighttime atmosphere uh, and it's you know it's quite rich in what it's trying to do um I, you know I, do, I don't think the the two gene and phyllis are, are, are I, I mean they're hard parts to play and i and i don't think and and that they they're one of the sort of least satisfying elements for me and it's and it's a shame because um i remember Joanne Kenny very fondly from Grange Hill and i'm sorry that she's she she died you know so young um but having those characters and having you know a nod towards you know you know femininity and maybe bubbling sexuality and 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 having something you know to uh you know mirror you know ace what you know what she represents and kathleen and motherhood and you know i think it's a brave attempt to to throw all of that into the mix amongst a you know to use a phrase boy's own adventure that has as i say the refreshing element of, of of russian rather than german and to have the ancient stone stuff and the you know the the the, the viking uh ghost story element you know it's a, it's a fusion of lots of marvelous things and obviously quite a stuffed and dense text that has been paired to the bone which means we get those lovely voiceovers over other scenes going on which means we don't see people leaving one place and arriving at another they're there they deliver the 
the important stuff. McCoy says something brooding and looks out into the distance and buggers off somewhere else to go and ask somebody something else. It's lovely. It's lovely. And, and Mark Ayres' music is, you know, is an undercurrent, but it's got a military thing going on as well. But there's the, the, the nighttime scariness. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, I think it's... And, and this is the guy that directed The Mysterious Planet and Paradise Towers. And I think his pacing, his framing, his, his use of atmosphere, his casting is all bang on Nicholas Mallet well done uh and you know Ian Briggs's script has has everything you could possibly want so my goodness it is a very 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 good and a very very satisfying episode of Doctor Who um don't write in by the way if I've got some of the uh I I I, I, sh- I should have checked if I'd wanted to show off so I I mean when was this when was this on I mean, 30 odd years ago. So uh, that's when I was well into the Chekhovs. I mean, I've seen many of them many times since. Uh, I love the seagull. That, that that production of the seagull I saw, by the way, had an actor I'd never heard of in the lead, Constantin, played, but was played by Simon Russell Beale and Nina by Amanda Root. I've since, well, I've since been stared at her for to read through at the Foresight Saga. She didn't smile back. Um, <laughs> uh, but in that production, Alfred Burke was soaring. Uh, Sobriakov was played by Trevor Martin. I saw Doctor Who on stage. I got to know Trevor a bit later. Jacob was played, who's got three lines, one of which is, can we go for a swim, sir? Was um, Arnold Yarrow. I've seen Belal on stage. Uh, and he's still with us, whereas Trevor, sadly, is not. Alfred, Alfred Burke is not. Uh, Trigorin was Roger Allen. There's an actor who should have been in Doctor Who. Arcadina was Susan Fleetwood. She was a magnificent actress who died far too young. Uh, she was amazing in that. They were all brilliant. Oh, and Katie Behean, who sadly died very tragically, uh, was a great classical actress uh, of that time. Graham Turner, uh, who since uh, who since turned up in Doctor Who. Um uh in uh you know the um the scarlet death one uh and yeah it was i mean it was an an absolutely top notch cast john carlisle oh who is marvelous as dr dawn um why am i talking about that production of the seagull um because yes so just if 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 i've Stuck Gaev and Trofimov and Prozorov in the wrong place. Don't write in because as soon as I've done here, I'm going to go and I'm going to go and check uh, to remind myself because I read and reread those Chekhov plays because really because they chimed with the Doctor Who. I mean, it was exactly the same time that this was happening. Uh, you know, as as this was going out or as, as this was about to go out. I can't remember the exact timings. I was at Stratford watching this thing and then I was looking, flicking through Chekhov and noticing the names were the same as the names in the Doctor Who. So, of course, then I read the plays because why would you not read the plays that have got characters named after characters in a Doctor Who story that you're absolutely loving? So, you know, my education where I read and reread, you know, the major plays of Chekhov and some of his short stories. Uh, and, and, you know, then I think I... You know, chose to study them at university as well when there was a module on 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 Chekhov and Ibsen and so you know I dived into all of that but but but, but I mean a lot of people do it because they're 
drawn to the Russian sensibility or they love the sad humour of Chekhov's pieces or the, the flawed characters that he writes so well um, or his, you know, his apt, you know, his, his, his great skill and aptitude for capturing the sort of small pathetic nature of man that leads to great individual tragedy and juxtaposing you know that the, the, the sort of small empty lives with you know the the, the the great loss that we feel when they are so empty uh, uh, but I so, and, you know that and that speaks to many people on a number of different levels of identification and emotion and um, you know wonderful psychological insight or you know greater comment about the, the tragicomic nature and futility of existence and uh i i did it because 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 a lot of the characters got the same names as some russian soldiers in the curse of fenric <laughs> i've never pretended to be an intellectual so um good old anton chekhov yeah good old the the non-star trek chekhov uh, and that's, I think, going to be... I do love that scene of Millington. Well, one, I, I mean, if I'm going to choose my favourite thing, I know what I'm going to choose. And I think I, I knew pretty much going into this. But I'm still I'm still resting because I love that scene of Millington, that establishing scene. I don't know why. It just, it just speaks to me. It's the economy, the performance, the music, the cutting... That is just subtle and evocative. I love that establishing scene of Millington. Uh, it, I think it just really works. Uh, I love all the characters. I love the brooding, moody atmosphere. I love the lick that it goes at. I think the pacing of it is excellent. Uh, I think everyone in it is great. Uh, I, you know, I, lo I love the World War II setting so much. So much of this is good, but I, I think I've got to, I can't not choose that my favourite thing in episode one, and, and because I think it affects the whole atmosphere and tone of the story, is the Russian soldiers, is the Russian element. It just seems so exciting and different and grown up for it not to be Germans. And of course, that comes later important to the plot. But so it meant that we'd got a World War Two, and World War Two stories were so familiar for all the war films and commando mags and all that sort of thing that I was growing up with. But to have World War Two in Doctor Who seemed quite thrilling and exciting and obvious. And yet, hang on, but we don't. It, you know, it does. We we don't have it uh, except for uh, no, because the War Games is World War One. So it seemed really odd. It seemed sort of long overdue. But then to not go the obvious route and do the, you know. Um, well, <laughs> I suppose do the do the Churchill and the and all of that, uh, and, and I I just and 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 because it's you know had a, the personal element of the the Chekhov thing, which was just perfectly time for me to be doing Chekhov at college. It just seemed seemed like Doctor Who was talking to me, and, and it's strange. And I'm not I I know I'm not unique in this. We all have our own you know versions of the and do, somehow you know that there was something happening with a doctor who story that reflected something in my life or there was a reference or uh, somebody i knew ended up being you know we we all have that thing where doctor who suddenly seems like it's weaving very specially into our lives uh and and i certainly feel that it's done that frequently 
on 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 a number of occasions in under lots of different circumstances and this was one of them where you know my my love and obsession for this doctor who story tied in with some with an obsession i had with with Chekhov plays which were part of my theatre studies education that I was doing at college and you know college they had the collected works of Chekhov so I you know I took them out voluntarily and read them and so it helped me you know with my course with with get doing drama and and, and sort of enabled me to show off as well to because I was well read because I'd read um, you know the, the the Cherry Orchard and Three Sisters and you know blah, blah, blah. what is it with an with an L says you know I those Russian places all, all about women staring out of windows talking about ducks flying to Moscow ha <laughs> great line um but I love the Russian I love the Russian so I am going to choose as my favorite thing for episode one of a brilliant episode a flawless episode bar the um subtitles which look like they've been printed off one of those printers that would have been at my mum's work you know the sort of dot matrix printers you know minus marks for that you should have just gone for grown-up normal subtitles uh and the way that petrosian runs uh, and sort of does a sort of he, he's not me he's not meaning to be comic it's just a film from an unfortunate angle um and, I, and i'm not wild about the um gene and phyllis and and miss hardacre that the 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 realization of that i know what they're driving at but uh that i don't think they're 100 percent successful um but but um you know in 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 many doctor who stories those things wouldn't stick out quite so much because they'd be and, and perhaps he w- wouldn't seem as, as 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 egregious as perhaps they're not and they wouldn't be in other doctor who stories but just because the quality just because they're surrounded by so much that is excellent uh i i acknowledge those bits that 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 don't quite pass muster for me because uh, again this is very much me at the time always had an eye on you know people walking in when i'm watching doctor who and i wanted them to walk in see something amazing and go toby you're right doctor who is the best program ever i am now a fan too and i will be your friend uh i mean i would i would i brought the videotapes of this season to parties we'd have drunken parties and then in the morning we'd get up and i'd put them on and again hope my friends would kind of you know really get into it uh with this one well they yeah well i'll talk about what happened uh with this one later because it involves a character we've not really seen although he does get a credit in this episode but he's not had any lines but we'll talk about him later i think some of you will know to whom i'm alluding because i think he floats the boats of uh of people who play for every single team um but we'll get into that but but also i I mean i say with a certain amount of shame that i took the videotapes of this season to parties my fr- i'm I, you know i sometimes feel you know as, as though i've never quite fitted in and blah, blah 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 actually i've had really good friends at school and at college and at university who've indulged my passion for doctor who in a way that I look back at now and go, God, people were nice. God, people were indulgent. Um, and, and you know, my, my genuine love for Doctor Who has, 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 I think, been very much indulged by by friends and partners and people in the past in a way that I, I sometimes think now, you know, I, I don't know how lucky I was. Um, anyway, my thing for episode one is all the Russianness of the Curse of Fenric. 
the the Russian soldiers, the the Russian language, the 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 Russian Chekhovian names. What's Allen's? But with an acknowledgement of that opening scene for Judson, uh, for Millington, which I think is gorgeous. Alan Lear, what is your favourite thing about episode one of The Curse of Fenric? Episode one. Uh, now, for episode one, it's got to be the setting. The, the loving, lovingly um, uh, created interiors with, the, you know, the church and the, and, and, and the beautiful um, uh, realism of, of the setting there. And more importantly, the landscape and the glorious ocean. And the, there's the, you know, the, there's also the, the Viking boat is, is, is beautifully realize as well i think but but the, the whole setting um of, of curse of fenric is really effective and atmospheric and, and I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, they were able to persuade jnt not to go with with internal sets for it but but do land uh sorry on location shooting that was marvelous um, um yes i mean i suppose i that, that was an a, a a thing i could have guessed that Alan might have gone for because when you you know when you when you're assessing what you like about a story at entry level you know its setting is pretty much you know stop one really isn't it but uh, I, I I couldn't betray my my Russian boys um, but I think the setting is excellent and yes the fact that it's shot all on location gives it uh, a sort of convincing continuity um, I'm I'm not always wild about. Um, you know, all videotape production, but act and, and sometimes I think you know you can have problems with sort of clumpy, clumpy sound or you know fairly muzzy lighting that's compromised. But uh, I actually think it's uh, you know it can all look a bit corporate video sometimes. You know, you're fighting space aliens in it with in, with all the atmosphere of a infomercial for Portaloos. But uh, I I, th- I think it I think. Nick Mallet shoots this well enough, and everybody acts it well enough that it 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 it, it brings you into it, and there's a moody atmosphere to it as, as as much as can be mustered on, you know, stark stark videotape with a lot of natural lighting. Um, yeah, the setting is a fair enough choice, but I had to choose my Russian boys, and if I hadn't chosen mm-hmm. my Russian boys, I had to choose Commander Millington's opening scene. But I do obviously think the setting is genius, long overdue to set Doc Two there. And they do enough with the setting to shake it up to make it seem like a fresh and interesting take. World War Two plus ancient sea monsters. Ha! Ah, what's not to love? So much to love about the curse of Fenric. I know I'm going to enjoy doing this one. There's, there will be no hardship. Uh, and, I, and it's amazing how well I know it as well. My goodness. I mean, I know it better than... Obviously, I'm, I, I don't quite remember... I assumed the Chekhov knowledge was be residing in the back of my head, but those synapses are obviously fraying a little bit because I'm sure not that long ago I'd have just gone biff bang biff. Uh, but I can still, I can still give you the name of every actor in this, so I've retained the important stuff. So um, yeah, so perhaps my, uh, perhaps some of my un- undercurrents of, uh, of, 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 of stop moving at the snap nothing there anymore it's just it's just flat with with uh, no no activity no activity there's nothing going on beneath the surface anymore so none, none of it works uh anyway i really enjoyed that i hope you did too i hope you love the curse of fenric i think it's one of doctor who's finest i think it's one of sylvester mccoy's finest they're both great in it as well i, I love the sort of brooding 
doctor who's you know going from place to place just saying something spooky and then you know zipping off somewhere else to say something spooky to someone else a graveyard it's got a graveyard said it said it church graveyard yeah said it on a beach said it in an army barracks said it in a church with a graveyard these are all great places where terrible things can happen uh you know the the sense of jog the geography chosen it's very very clever well done ian briggs well done nick mallet well done andrew cartmel well done mark Ayres. it's all and and what a cast it all comes together so beautiful the curse of fenric uh i which i remember was announced as being the wolves of fenric but uh which I think is a slightly, I think is a slightly better title, uh, but I can I can also understand why you would change it because you know they're not they're not literal wolves or even werewolves. Uh, you'd be watching and going unless yeah, apart from the fact you'd be watching and where 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 are the wolves? Um, there's no there's, uh, yeah. Anyway, let's right. Shut up. Actually, I'm not going to entirely shut up just yet because once this episode was recorded originally and put on Patreon, this isn't a plug, but uh, but I'll mention it anyway, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock, where you get everything a little bit earlier and you also get the chance for some feedback. And I mused, I'd mused at the thought of getting Andrew Cartmel's contribution because he's always offered... Uh, if I want a little bit of uh, extra insight. I don't like to bother people, though. But um, I mentioned it, and uh, all of the Patreon feedback said, definitely get Andrew on, because he's not on the commentary, and, you know, it's such an important story. So I chanced my arm, and Andrew said yes. So what we're going to do now, because I had, that, that hadn't been the plan, and I hadn't done that when I recorded the commentary for this episode, is um, before we draw this particular instalment of this podcast to a close is that we are going to jump on the ultimate machine, uh, the laptop, and uh, uh, speak to the script editor of The Curse of Fenric, who has a lot of thoughts and insights into this remarkable Doctor Who story. I'd done episode one of this, and then I'd said, oh, I remember Andrew saying when we did Dragonfire, if ever I was doing another one, I should, I should let him know. Uh, and everyone went, yeah, we really need to hear Andrew on this because he's not on the commentary on the uh, DVD. Uh, this is from Jim Smith, who's a very smart chap who's written many a book about Doctor Who. And Jim also says, because I was very positive about episode one and I was saying how I love the transmitted version, um, you know, as much as, as as any other. And he said, lovely to see someone sticking up for the transmitted version of Fenderick. Season poll winning it may have been, but the rapid release of the extended VHS and the wonderful expanded novelization saw the original version end up as slightly written off as, to borrow a phrase, sent into this world scarce half made up. And I really don't think it is. I know Andrew Cartmel now thinks the TX version is as a kind of write-off, but the other versions all contain stuff he missed from the TX. But that's because he's inside the process. From the outside, the original version really worked for me, and it still does. They got it as right as they could under the circumstances, and I think Andrew should be proud of that, he says. So there we go. Okay, a couple of things there. First of all, what's the source of the quote? Uh, Richard III. I was, I was uh-huh. sent into this world scarce half made up. That hack Shakespeare strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so just for anybody who doesn't know, TX means transmission, the transmission version, the version that went out on, on the telly. Uh, well, he's 
not wrong in the sense that I can only see it from an insider's point of view. And so uh, it was not a case of um, retro retroactively thinking, oh, the, um, the long version is better and the transmission version isn't. It was when the transmission version went out, I was just, my head was in my hands. I just, because I knew how great it was and I knew what would hit the screen just did not work. And I have a very specific and detailed analysis of what the problem is, if you want to hear it. Mm. Okay. The problem is there was way too much material. It was too long to go out. Now, there are, there is a school of thought that that's the script editor's problem, but my school of thought is that the director has to time it based on how he, he knows he's going to shoot it and give it. And if there's some sense that it's going to be too long, let us know and we can fix it. There was none of that. So, you know, Nick Mallett, a terrific director, but whoever on his team, including him, didn't do that is responsible for it being too long. I take <laughs> I take no responsibility for that. But the fact is it was way too long. Now, the way to have fixed that, the way that John John Nathan Turner was a brilliant editor, there's a couple of things he was great at, particularly great at, um, making creatively shifting a budget because he had no money, but he could achieve great things with almost no money. That was one thing. The other thing was he actually had a natural gift for editing because I sat with him while we edited with the directors there and John would make suggestions and they were always terrific suggestions. He could have been an editor. So John was a good editor, but what he did with this was all wrong. There was way too much stuff. So the way that he fixed it was to take a little bit out of everything, like to reduce everything a little bit, which might sound like a good idea, but it is not a good idea because it ended up nothing to me, it worked. Everything was rushed. There was no breathing space. I felt that you could almost dub in sort of Keystone Cops music over some of it, you know, they're just rushing around back and forth. Uh, and it was, it ruined it, frankly. And I thought a lot about this. And the thing to do was not to try and reduce everything by a little bit. It was to lose something, to lose some strand or subplot in its entirety or almost in its entirety, then leave everything else at its current length and let everything else breathe and work. And I've thought about this, and the way to have done that would have been to have lost, if not all, then most of the Nicholas Parsons strand. Now, it's a great, no, no, it's a masterpiece, but something's got to go. In my mind, something had to go, and that was the thing that could go without affecting the main thrust of the story. I mean, if you go back and analyze it, if you can come up with something that's a better um, nomination than that, Please tell me, but uh, you know, I think that one had to would have had to be ruthless and just decide that has to hit the cutting room floor. And in a feature film, I think it would have done. Now, it's great stuff, which is one reason John wouldn't have done it. But the, I think the other reason John would never have countenanced that is because it featured Nicholas Parsons, who was a big name guest star, and John loved his guest stars. He loved him a guest star, and he would never have even considered that. And I never suggested it's not as though I said this at the time and he ignored it. I didn't even think of it till years later that, that that would have been the way to do it. That would have been the solution. Lose something almost in its entirety or in its entirety and let everything else breathe. So that's what they should, they should have done something of that nature to, to defend it. But it doesn't matter because the transmission version was only one version, it turns out. And then they did the extended cut and the extended cut just worked. Like when I saw it, I was astonished and it's not often in life that we get a second chance on these things because mm. Fenric had just been, had been a, a fantastic script, which had had the great good fortune to be well shot, you know, with a good cast, good director, 
to, to so good script actually turned into a good TV show and then destroyed in the editing for reasons of duration, for reasons of making it fit the transmission lengths. But then it came back. Like, I th and I thought that was that. I really thought that was that. You know, we too bad about Fenric <laughs> was what yeah. I thought. And then they, I saw the extended cut. And I was just so grateful. I mean, thank God that they hadn't recorded snooker over it for a start. <laughs> all the yeah. other, you know, all the extra bits. Because that was, that was, I seem to remember that was the uh, standard procedure otherwise. So thank you to everybody who's done that. And, uh, you know, if people like the original version, that's even better mm. because it means there's no bad version, really. <laughs> but, in you know, from my point of view, that's that's the way I see it. Well, there's a lot of love coming for the original version. And 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 there's two things that strike me on that. One, if you had cut the Nicholas Parsons bit, for somebody who spent his entire career uh, encouraging people to consolidate something to just a minute, he wouldn't have been able to uh, uh, have, have, have felt too chastened by it. Uh, well, he, he, was, he was all about the what consolidation. A great, what a great thought. I've forgotten, completely forgotten <laughs> that connection. I mean, I, I knew who he was, but I've forgotten that, they, that might you might be able to make that comparison. How lovely. Um, um, and the other thing yeah. was, I was I was an angry teenager, and I was convinced Doctor Who was never was not as good as it used to be, and that you know, um, uh, and all of all of that crap that you go through as a teenager, which of course I grew out of. But even at the time, through being that angry teenager and always looking at the things that worried me, or I thought were wrong with Doctor Who, the Curse of Fenric catapulted its way into my top ten and has remained there ever oh, since. Cool. And that's in the original version, and I watched and rewatched that that original version over and over again and i still love it so um again you you know what uh what babies were killed but uh we never saw them we never saw them being born so to use that uh... well no the, the thing is you you have seen you've seen those babies grow, grow to maturity because you've seen the of long course. version the mm. babies that were killed were killed on the tx version but <laughs> it's all worked out which, which is great um there i always see the flaws in these things the 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 chief hemovore those costumes aren't great. I mean, I remember Ken True doing the the, the the color sketches of them and they're beautiful, but you know, it's just styrofoam or whatever they make that stuff out of. His jaw doesn't work. I, I see it flapping around. I I felt that the whole, I've, I've, I've always argued this and John never agreed with me. The way to go with Monsters and Doctor Who was pretty much the way the, the vampire girls are in, the, the ones I've just proposed cutting in the Nicholas Parsons. <laughs> That was the way to do it with, you know, uh, that long fingernails, scary eyes, that, you know, as human as possible is my argument, simply because we couldn't do the, the the guy in the rubber suit very well. I mean, nobody could until Ridley Scott did Alien. Nobody did the guy in the rubber suit mm. at all well, I feel. I Well, I... I, I, no, no, I let, me, let me correct myself. The Destroyer was great. The Destroyer was great in I, Battlefield. I, I, I like the him but I think the ones that look a bit more human with the hair are slightly better than the sort of corally monstery ones. So they're actually the ones that you see a bit less of, you know, when yeah. they're rising out from the sea, they're the ones, because they look a bit more like a zombie. They're a bit more of a parody of an undead human than a I sort of corally blue agree. monster. And the, the, I mean, the whole, the aesthetic approach, you know, that the, they're encrusted like the hull of a ship. Oh, I mean, it all makes sense. It just, it but it just ends up looking like dodgy rubber monsters. Uh, and forgive me for saying this, uh, the, I think the story still works. But I've always had this thing with Doctor Who um, that we did great work, but it's you're walking a tightrope. I remember when we screened, did the press screening of 
felt on the Bannerman, which had a lot of great stuff going for it. But I was sitting there beside members of the press and we'd had this terrible disaster where the um, the makeup crew had basically just gone out in the piss the night before and the following morning, they just decided to the that the, um, the, the alien was just going to have bits. I've said this elsewhere, but it's still true. He just had bits of cotton wool stuck on his face, uh, dyed green. And that was the, the way the alien... And John came, saw this, blew up, and insisted that they do a better job. But the trouble is they had, they'd already shot some footage with this ridiculous face. So there I am, cut forward to, to Fenric... Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, to um, Malcolm Sir Bannerman being finished, edited, or, and being shown to the press, at, you know, big press launch junket. And I'm sitting there, and we're, it's going pretty well. And then we get a shot of this guy with his his cotton wool green face beside me. This press this press woman, the students goes, <laughs> suppressed laughter. And I thought, she's right. She's right. It is laughable. But also, you know, we're from this point on, can I swear in this podcast? Yeah, yeah. We're fucked. So from that point on, we were fucked. And we were fucked because somebody just didn't do their job properly. And the trouble with special effects, especially monster effects, and the more ambitious they are, the more alien the creature is, the more exposed you are to, to somebody just not. And even people who are desperately trying to do a great job might not be able to pull it off for all, you know, because they don't have the time, they don't have the materials, or they perhaps just don't have the aptitude. It's not always neglect or malice. Sometimes, the, the you know, people are... Just, working their hearts out that still doesn't work but this was a problem at the time because we didn't have much of a budget we didn't have much time and also special effects were in their infancy i mean now presumably on our macbook airs we could create better effects than some of the effects we had in the show at the time but i think that fenric survives that i think all of the doctor who story did survive that but I'm always wary of showing them to somebody who's not an initiate, who's not an insider, because other, you might get that first snigger and then they're jolted out of it. And and they don't, it's not, it, it, it isn't, it, they shouldn't, it shouldn't be the case, that shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be that it's inevitable that there's going to be something dodgy that's going to jolt people out of the narrative. It, it, it was within our ability to do a show where you never had those sniggers. I mean, people could not like it, but they wouldn't have been able to judge it on the basis of just really dodgy effects. So that's just a long diatribe about the way I felt. Don't get me started on the cheetah people in survival. <laughs> but I, I think it behoves us as an audience. I remember a, a, a comedian who's not a, a, a telly fan at all called Jeff Innocent, who's a big old Cockney guy. And he says, oh, you like the old telly, don't you, Toby? And I said, yeah. He says, he said, yeah, what problem with, with, with us nowadays? Uh, uh, is that, uh, you know, who decided that television had to look real all the time? He said, I was brought up on stuff and you knew it wasn't real, but you you enjoyed it anyway. And it, I think what he was trying to say was, you know, you met stuff on its own terms and it, it, it ill behoves you to do otherwise because all you're doing is going, well, I know that's not real. Well, we know it's not real anyway. It's whether we're prepared to meet something on its own terms and accept well, what it's trying to do. What we're talking about, there, Toby, is slightly different. We're almost talking about theatre, aren't we? Where you're in the theatre and it's an illusion and it's an agreed illusion, and it you have people you can have people with two chairs and a board, and it's supposed to be the land of Oz, and it can be the land of Oz if it's well done and and if our imaginations are open. But this is a slightly different thing. This is where there's actually an attempt to do an explicit representation of something, and 
it would have been possible for some television production teams to have achieved that, whereas others didn't. Because, I mean, there, there are things in the Quatermass stories, the, the early Quatermass serials, uh, not, it's not consistently great, but when it works, it looks, it's sometimes fantastic, right? Mm. So it's certainly not inevitable that television in that period had to look dodgy. It was, uh, it, it was just some kind of failing each time. That's, that's where I stand on it. Well, let's put the failings to one side. I'm going to take you on a whistle-stop tour, episode by Please. episode. We've been nominating our favourite things about The Curse of Fenric, episode by episode. So episode Can I nominate one. my favourite thing? Yeah, so what's your favourite thing for episode one? Well, it's the same for all the episodes. It's Ian Briggs. Without right. genius. I mean, it's a really Briggsian story, and it, everything that we're going to talk about is a consequence of his writing. So that okay, that's that's just I wanted to say that at the top. Um, uh, yes, it, I mean it's it's extraordinary that because um, it's it's very different from, uh, well I suppose it's not that it's 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 because because Dragonfire has the sort of the baddies and a sort of Nazi guy, isn't it? It's all that militaristic stuff, but he he's it's that synthesis that he has of the the uh, the ancient. Uh, and the period setting and you know burgeoning technology and but it's little touches like what i chose for my favorite thing for episode one uh was the fact that the um those one section of protagonists are russian as, as me i i just it was timed with the first time i'd seen a Chekhov play at the royal shakespeare company oh but russian God. just russian just seemed slightly i've seen lots of war films but everyone had been germans and English. yes so the russian aesthetic just seemed to give it something that made it feel to me as a teenage boy watching it a little bit more grown up, a little bit more eclectic. It gave it a little bit more verisimilitude. So that was that was my thing. Whereas Alan's thing, who's my guest on this podcast, he chose the World War II setting, which kind of is is tied in with that, which that's... seemed to give this story a particular feel. Okay, that's that set me up perfectly for what I had to say because I sat down with him. We thought very carefully about what we wanted to do because. Dragon, you say it's very different from Dragonfire. The, I, to me, the biggest difference is that it's better directed, more sympathetically directed. And I was going to say the design is better, but that's not true. The design in Dragonfire was actually great, but the lighting was rubbish. So the design was not sympathetically lit, but you've got good design and good lighting in Dragonfire. Sorry, in Fenric. So what I'm saying is they're not as different as you think. It's just that one was really well presented to us and the and the other isn't i.e dragonfire wasn't so we briggs and i sat down thinking very carefully about what we were going to do for the next one and quite early on we decided world war ii because the bbc does period stuff so great i don't know if at that point we'd already begun to see how wonderful um ghostlight was looking I, ca I can't remember what the sequence was but ghostlight is a classic example of a great doctor Who story because it's victorian period the bbc is great at period any in any case we were smart enough to know that we wanted to do an earth-based story because they're always better because it's so hard to create an alien planet and we wanted to do an historical story because the bbc is so great at that and quite early on we thought world war ii brilliant but we thought let's do something different you know like the standard take on world war ii is germans so let's not go down that route let's have the russians that's exactly what we thought we just thought we'll dodge the obvious one and make it russians and that just in the same way that for you it made it way better for us it made it way better too and that that was such a crucial decision world war ii and russians really um give that something give it a special flavor and and make it outstanding yeah 
And if you're a pretentious drama student, as I was at the time, the fact that I could spot where all the which Chekhov plays all the names came from as well. Well, that's great. We well, see that's all totally Briggs Briggsian because I still don't know much about. I just just finished missing a production of a Cherry Orchard <laughs> because I had a mouse in the house. This is a true story. I woke up and there's a mouse. And I had to deal with a mouse in the house and I missed a matinee of the Cherry Orchard. But I, that strikes me as a rather Chekhovian thing to have happened. Yeah, actually. absolutely. Why, yeah, why wasn't she here? Because there was a mouse in the house. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and all of which to say, I didn't know that. I didn't know that he was, he was um, smuggling in Chekhov character names, but that's so Briggs. And I'm, I, I think that's so wonderful. They are they are all Chekhov. So if you'd seen the Cherry Orchard, I think I think Vershinin is is the Cherry. Oh, that's wonderful! Um, I didn't is, know this. Is, Thank you. I'm Eagle. learning things. Petrosian, on... they're all they're all in there. And and in fact, Prozorov uh, is he changes in the book to Trofimov, and but they're both names from Chekhov as well. Um, even the guy on the beach um, who doesn't get any lines, who's you know, you know yeah. Gaev, who's a bit vague. Gaev is is a Chekhov as well. So they're all they're all there. I'm going to be on the email to Briggs right after this. <laughs> it's so hilarious and wonderful too. Really great. Yeah, nice touch. He, he's a classy, classy guy, Briggs, uh, in Briggs. And um, that also perhaps speaks to his great ability to create characters. Of all, I worked with wonderful writers on Doctor Who, but Ian Briggs always struck me as the one who was the most gifted at creating three-dimensional characters. And perhaps that's one reason why is that he his he his diet his the diet of his mind was things like Chekhov. Well, that was a nice bonus, wasn't it? A contribution from Andrew Cartmel, for which I'm very grateful. Thanks to Andrew, who was the script editor of the Curse of Fenric. He'll be back for episodes two, three, and four, as will Alan Lear, and as will I, Toby Haydock, your host. And hopefully, by the end of this little excursion back in time, the Curse of Fenric will be something less of an enigma. Well, Splasiba for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydock, and my special guest, Alan Lear. I'm grateful to Alan and to the patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Tom White, Stephen White, Sidney Wilson, Andrew Wilson, Andrew Willis, Reese Williams, Michael Williams, Rich Wiggins, Adam Westwood, Gary Wales, Apollo C. Vermouth, Sabrina Tiribassi, Damian Timmer, Nick Temple, Neil Tate, Stephen, all small case, no surname. Uh, furnish me with those things if uh, you want me to say them out loud, surname. Tim Smith, David Shepherdson, Graham Slate, Keith Say, Jim Sankster, Mark Sandham, John Rivers, Dylan Reese, Scott Pride, Kevin Parker, Jonathan Potter, Melvin Pena, Dave Owen, Graham Knott, Matthew Newton, Christopher Newman, Ian Morgan, Nathan Moore, Stuart Mitchell, Russ McPhillips, Jason Mayer, David Matthewman, Steve Manfred and Gavin McLean. The music is by Dave Gates, the artwork Dylan Patterson. Okay, so if you would like your name read out on the credits... You can do so by becoming a patron. It's one of the perks. You get many a perk in Patreonville uh, for as little as £3 a month. Uh, you get your name read out on the credits. You get it read out more frequently the higher you go up the tiers. I mean, there aren't many other extra bonuses to going up the tiers. Yeah, go on, sell it, Toby. Um, because everything is available at ground level, which is £3 a month. Uh, you get your name read out at £3 a month, which is not as often as you get your name read out if you... If you do it for a million pounds a month, there isn't there isn't a million pound tier. But I mean, I'll make one if you want to.
There wasn't much of a gap there, was there, between the closing titles and that musical sting? That was there, just sitting there as a as a cue waiting to happen, which is why, you know, I just got to the natural end of that sentence. Um, I, I mean, it interrupted me, really. I normally do this whole section as one section and then have a cue, but heck, it's like being live. Uh, so, yes, Patreonville, £3 a month, up to a million if you want. I mean, it might take some organising on my part, but I'm prepared to have a bash. Uh, and you get 10% off if you sign up for a whole year, at whatever tier you're at. But most stuff is available at even the lowest tier and that's bonus releases exclusive releases and of course everything is released much much earlier on patreon Ha, I'm having to replace the original post-credits sequence, which is supposed to be disposable and ephemeral and not very important, but it would have been inaccurate because I've just listened back to it just to make sure it didn't have anything like going, oh, I think we should get Andrew Cartmel on this and him already being there. If I have said that elsewhere in the podcast, sorry, um, I, I don't want to listen to the whole thing through again. So if, if, uh, if, if, if it's a sort of work that evolves in front of your ears, that's fair enough. But this bit had to go because it's me going... Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about those short music stings. Uh, they just crept up on me. But uh, come on, you've had 51 minutes of a podcast. That's enough. If the curse of Fenric proves anything to us, it's 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 that cutting stuff down to its core can actually be very good for it. Uh, and since I recorded that and released that episode, which only went out on uh, Patreon, because then it was decided to add uh, add a sprinkle of Cartmelian wisdom onto it, uh, it's it's actually got longer than it was. So, so the podcast that ended with me going, yeah, I think uh, I think it's much better if we're uh, if we're concise and cut away the flab has had an extra twenty minutes added to it. But it's twenty minutes of Andrew Cartmel, so it's not flab. It's um, it's insight and and wisdom and a good company. He's a, he's a he's a nice guy, Andrew, um, and you know gave his time there very willingly uh, in order to give some insight into the story. But um, yeah, I I sort of vowed in the original postgrad it's this is very much a here's what you could have won into isn't it here's the the bullseye speedboat of the uh of the post credits genre uh, post uh so um yeah i uh I, I think i went well yes in future i will boil down uh uh episodes of happy times and places to you know just to the important core ingredients and i thought i could even edit out all the ums and ahs and then i thought God, no, I've already got too much to do. I'm afraid this is how it is. Um, but this one is how it is and slightly longer. But um, anyway, yeah, I'd, I'd left the original one musing on the uh, on the idea that less was more. And I was going to leave you with less so that you could do more. But as it is, I've given you more. Uh, but it's all right, more or less.